Gracious God, our Father, would you come now and speak your word. Speak for the edification of your people, for our upbuilding, for our conviction, for our healing and comfort. Speak and guide your people. Speak, Father, now we pray to those who don't yet know you, but you made them and they owe you rightly all honor and praise, but they can't yet do that. Would you speak to draw them, to convince them, to persuade them, to reveal to them that their shame and their darkness and their sin can be taken away in Christ? Would you come now, Lord, and speak and have all the honor here? We ask in Christ's name, amen. The story is told of uh, two men who are on a plane flight, and uh, before it even takes off, they begin their very body conversation, speaking loudly, cursing freely to the point where the passengers around them begin to shuffle a bit in their seats and get just a bit anxious with all of it. Unbeknownst to them, there is a pastor who's seated in the row immediately in front of them. After putting up with this for a while and becoming pretty clear that the others on the plane were noticeably upset and they had put up with about enough, this pastor turned in his seat and he sat up to where he was looking over the two men seated behind them in their row and he asked them a question. I'm just curious, are you men in the ministry? They were a bit shocked and they sneered at his idea. When they told him no, he said, well, I'm surprised that you're not, because you see, I'm myself a pastor, and I'm returning from a speaking engagement, and you both have spoken more about God and hell and damnation and Jesus Christ than I could manage to get into most of my messages. (laughs) The two men did not curse anymore for the rest of the flight. We come this morning to the third of the Ten Commandments. It is the one about the Lord's name. Yahweh's ransomed and delivered people brought out of bondage in Egypt have been shown the glories of God through the magnificence of his works so that all could know that there is a God in heaven, not these gods of Egypt, not Pharaoh as a God, not even the life-giving Nile River that flows through the land and gives life wherever it goes. No, there is a God in heaven, and he has spoken, and he has shown, and now that he's brought these people out, he's gathered them at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he takes them, and he begins to give his law to them. Why? Because now he forms them, his redeemed people. Now he shapes them and establishes them in him as he gives them his law. Even the first expression, that kernel of an expression of all of his law found in what we know as the Ten Commandments, as the Hebrews would have called it the Ten Words, the literal translation given several times in Scripture. And this law, all of it, the several chapters that come starting at this point in Exodus, and just this list of ten, all of this was given for their good, and it's given for our good, even more when it's rightly understood and it's rightly applied and when it's taken in in the hands of the Spirit of God, it is a law of hope and a law of help. Let's um, 
Let's endeavor to do that if God would help and do that this morning. Lord, please do. I'd like to begin by seeing how this command, these commands, all of them, but this one that we'll look at today, fits within the context of what's going on in the book of Exodus. How has Yahweh set the stage? Um, by the way, can I have somebody's, can I have your insert that has the Exodus? Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Extra cookies for dessert for you. <laughs> what has uh, the Lord been doing with regard to his name thus far already in the book of Exodus? Well, first, God has revealed himself in his name. First, God has revealed himself in his name. This first passage I've printed for you here, Exodus 3. I'd like you to just take a look at it with me really quick. Then Moses said to God, this is the burning bush. Moses said to God there at the bush, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel... And I will say to them, sorry, Moses appealing to God there at the bush. Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. If you care to and you want to take notes right there on your notes, you might circle the words I am, because that's what I'm focusing on. That that revelation of God where he named himself. God is the only one in all Scripture who is, and in all of eternity, has never been given a name by somebody else. He named himself and he revealed it. The name he gave himself was I Am. When we went through this passage uh, some time back, we had a number of takeaways I won't repeat here. But just for us to note, I Am means that he is unsearchable. He just is. There's nothing that that caused him or created him. He is the uncaused cause. He is the unmoved mover. He is the reason behind all things. He just is. He is self-existent. Nothing else is needed by him to exist, but everything else needs him and depends upon him moment by moment, as Scripture says that the Lord holds all things together by the word of his power. This is what he has revealed to us just in this name, and we are barely beginning to scratch the surface. God needs nothing. Do you know that God doesn't need you to believe in him? He doesn't need us to believe in him to exist. He exists. It might be good for us to actually believe that, though. Praise God that all the blasphemies and all the the atheism in all the world cannot touch the self-existent Yahweh of creation. So early on in the book is people struggling in their hardship and their bondage, wondering if the Lord had ever remembered them. He gave a fresh revelation to kick off this work as he called Moses to himself and gave him his very name and said, I am. God has revealed himself in his name. Next, God has made his name great as deliverer. That's what he's doing in the book of Exodus. He's made his name great as deliverer. Genesis is where we find God as creator of all things. Exodus is where we find God as deliverer of his people. Look at Exodus 6 there with me, printed for you. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. Uh, Your translations would probably say, I am the Lord, but I'm emphasizing he's using the name that he just defined back in chapter 3. I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name. Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I also will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. If you would, you might want to circle these phrases, because this is what is connected to the name Yahweh here in the book of Exodus. It is his work, his actions here found in chapter 6. And what are they? I will bring you. Circle that. Two lines down, I will deliver you. Circle that. And then I will redeem you. God has made his name great in the Exodus event by letting the world know he delivers. He rescues. Are you stuck? (laughs) There's one who can unstick you. Are you embittered? And you, as much as you hate it, can't help but be caught in the spiral of hate and vile malice in your heart. There is one who can deliver you. Are you hurt so deep? Some, sometimes your, your words catch in your throat. And you can't speak. You can't breathe. And you think, does anybody know? Does anybody care? There's a God who knows. And he can deliver. Are you despairing? If you're not, I can give you a recipe that about in 20 minutes with your phone and scrolling social media, I can get you there. Are you despairing? You see, God in Exodus has made his name great as the deliverer. This is the greatest nation on the face of the earth, the most powerful ruler who at a word could have you destroyed. And nobody would ever ever dare question him, Pharaoh. And then some ragtag, puny group of of servants. And they're going to release themselves from his grip? No way. But God did. You see, because God is the one who lifts burdens. I will bring you out. God is the one who breaks chains. I will deliver you from their bondage. God is the one who reaches out. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. The Lord reaches out and finds them. That's what he's doing. He's making his name great as deliverer. And third, God has proclaimed his name in power. God has proclaimed his name in power. Exodus 9. This is um, God speaking through Moses to Pharaoh. By the way, which uh, I think uh, took a little bit of guts for Moses to go stand up to the man who could have him killed. But he faithfully speaks the word of the Lord. And the Lord says to him, For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you, Pharaoh, I inserted that, to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. I've said it before, but it bears repeating, the book of Exodus would be incredibly short (laughs) if if God's desire was just to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. He just wakes up and he's like, oh, I think I want my people out of slavery. I think I'll deliver them. Boom, that's done. Good. What do you want to do next, Gabriel? If he just wanted his people delivered, that would have been easy, but that was not the purpose of everything that happens in the book of Exodus because that wasn't God's primary will. His will was to make his name known with power. 
so that the gods of the Egyptians would be mocked, would be taunted. Oh yeah, you think your, your God of the sun rules over the face of the earth and can, can scorch it dry or can bring forth life? Really? You worship him? Let me give you darkness. Where's your God now? Oh yeah, by the way, the sun is shining in Goshen where my people are because I just decided I wanted it to shine there today. And on and on with each and every one of them, God has proclaimed his name in power. He showed glimpse of himself. He showed who was the real power in the universe so that, so that Moses wouldn't have to fear Pharaoh or his armies, so that the people wouldn't have to fear their chariots or their spear points. Do we realize the great privilege that we have to know the God of the universe? I absolutely take it for granted all the time. And the Israelites even, even turned after these amazing physical, visible manifestations of God's power turned and disbelieved on so many occasions. Man, we are just leaky souls, aren't we, as humans? But God has proclaimed his name in power, and so we come back to his word. We come back to worship. We come back to fellowship. We come back to the reminders. We come back to him in prayer, and we say, Lord, I'm foolishly remiss. I'm, I'm terribly forgetful. Remind me afresh of your goodness and your power. God has proclaimed his name in power. The question is, does this look real in our lives? Does it look real in our prayer lives? Well, this is what God is doing in all of the book of Exodus up to this point. And now he tells this people before whom he has made his name great, to whom he has shown his power, uh, to whom he has revealed himself in his name, to take this name of his and carry it with great honor because they are the representatives of his name, his very being, his person, and his character on the face of the earth. You guys know where I'm going with this, right? Because we are ambassadors for Christ. As those standing at the foot of Mount Sinai were to be ambassadors of all they had seen that day, as the nation was to carry forward this legacy, they have seen God. They, they have been visited by God. They have come to know God, and he has now been revealed to them. And so now, how they carry the understanding of his person, encapsulated in one simple idea, how do you speak my name? That's what he's after in the third command. See how huge that really is? And see how huge, and at the same time, how simple that is for us as well. Come, hallow his name is the exhortation of Exodus 20, verse 7. So then, to our passage today, let's read. It's very short. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. He has just commanded them to have no other gods before them, before him. He has just 
commanded them not to worship him through any other mediation or human means which would shrink him down to their size, but to keep him in a way in their minds and in their hearts and in their souls so big, so huge, so, so ineffable that they are always overwhelmed by him when they come in worship and not try to shrink him down to something that they can control. I think you could say that the first two commands in a sense Well, let me back up. Of the ten commands, you have four commands that are vertical. They have to do with our relationship with God. And then you have six commands that are horizontal. They have to do with our relationship with people. Within the first four commands of our vertical relationship, you could say the first two speak primarily about God who is mighty. And then I'm going to argue that the next two speak about God who is near. Because when God tells them to not disdain his name, it's because that is such a simple and a constant reminder of where their hearts are, such an indicator of how they think of him day in and day out, even when they're not thinking of him. And what a great reminder, what a great gift it is for us to pause and consider that same thing. So the God who has said, have no false worship, now turns to something I would argue is far more personal. He's going to talk about daily worship. Not going up to the temple every day, not coming to church every day, just the daily worship of, hey, what does my name sound like coming out of your mouth? What does it sound like? What, what is my name like on your lips? You could think of people in your life that you could think of your name on their lips. Those who you love to hear speak your name because of the tenderness, because of the intimacy, because of the friendship. And those who you wince to think of speaking your name for any number of reasons. Here the question is, how do we worship Yahweh when we're not actively worshiping? Because that's what he raises the level of the speech of his name to. When you speak my name, You're revealing who I am to the world, and I put my name on you. And that's supremely important. What does his name sound like on our lips? Does it sound like a curse word? Does it sound like a fairy tale? You know, God and Pinocchio and Captain America, they're all kind of in the same group. Does it sound like some empty expression, like golly gee or some other turn of phrase that we just throw out without even ever thinking twice about? Or does his name on our lips sound like the living God? So first, two takeaways here from the command itself. First, how you speak of him is an act of worship. How you speak of him, Exodus 20 verse 7, I believe argues, is an act of worship. We know the Lord Jesus tells us that our mouth is an overflow of our heart. So what comes out is evidence of what's already in. And we're all worshipers. We all worship something. And the question is, our worship of the Lord, what does it look like? Well, a great barometer is how we speak of him. If you want to know how you know him, then the question is, have you listened to your words about him lately? This, by the way, is super scary, right? Now, we'll come around to that. But I also want to say that this 
can be a great encouragement, brothers and sisters, because I believe you can say, there are times I have spoken his name with great reverence. There are times I've prayed his name through streaming tears. There are times I've pled his name with a, a loved one. There are times when his name on my lips have demonstrated very clearly, not that I am anything, but that he is everything, and I'm just a beggar coming for his grace. How you speak of him is an act of worship, and that is also very encouraging when we are letting the Spirit have his way in our lives. Second, we can't get away from the warning that God invests into this command. And that leads to our second takeaway immediately at this point, that vain use of his name is a grave offense of the soul. Vain use of the name of God is a grave offense of the soul. Look again at the verse, you shall not take the name of, your Lord, of the Lord your God in vain. And then he gives a reason. He, he appends a warning to it. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. You know, it doesn't give specifics there. It just says God's going to not, not punish him. Okay, well, what is God going to do? I mean, how bad could it be really, right? Probably the most shocking evidence would be taken from Leviticus 24. Um, later in the giving of the law to this generation, there is, a, I want to say a break in, an, in the action, but it's actually an action in the break. Um, an action comes in the midst of the law, and there's the story of a dispute between two Israelites. One of the Israelites is actually half Egyptian, and the two of them in the midst of their fighting and their wrestling, the one of mixed descent blurts out a curse and takes the name of the Lord in vain. Leviticus 24.11 says, quote, he blasphemed the name and cursed. Well, there were bystanders that heard it, and they were appalled, and so they seized him, and they brought him to stand trial before Moses and say, what do we do with this man? They know the Ten Commandments, but Exodus 20 verse 7 doesn't say a whole lot. just says God won't leave him unpunished. Did the Lord leave him unpunished? If you know the rest of the story, you know what happened. I quote from Leviticus 24. The Lord says, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, for whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. For his words, his life was forfeit. Now, as I've pointed out before, and whew, thank you, it's extremely important to point out now, we are not under the civil law. We are no longer under the civil or the ceremonial law. We're still under the moral law. That's a fairly important distinction at this point, right? But the moral law still stands, and Exodus 20, verse 7, leaves it undefined for us. I think that's scary enough, isn't it? The Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. What's the point of all of this? It's a big deal. It is just a big deal. The Lord's name on my lips is a big deal to God. 
And it's actually an x-ray opportunity for me to see into my heart and to hear with my ears what's going on inside my soul and to realize, wow, did I really just do that? And when we come to that realization that it is a big deal, then it leaves us exactly in the place that the law means to leave us. It leaves us in the place of need to realize that we do fall short, that only God himself can give us hearts. And he does to see him rightly, to seek his face and say, Lord, let me, let me have a glimpse of you. Let me, let, forgive me and help me see afresh who you truly are. I've given you a number of scriptures there in your handout, and you can, you can just do a study if you want this week. Just study the word name, name of the Lord in scripture. You will find more than enough to do things with. A great discipline just to renew and refresh our hearts and minds in that. All right, well, so that's the sort of two-fold point, I think, of Exodus 20, verse 7. Now what I'd like to do is use our tools, the tools that we've talked about in um, the look at the Ten Commandments over uh, the last several weeks, and uh, let's put this command into the context of all of the law and into the context of all of Scripture and into the context of the coming of Christ. And so I'll do that by giving, I think, these Uh, this synopsis, where the Lord would say, come hallow my name. Obviously, I mean that to be an an echo of Jesus's words when his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is a riff off of Exodus Exodus 20, verse 7. It's the, the positive side of the prohibition. It's the duty that goes with this negative command. Don't take his name in vain, so rather respect, honor, hallow his name. Let me give you three ways that I think we can do that. There are many more than just these three, but here are three for us. First, don't be flippant, the Lord would say. Don't be flippant with my name or reputation. Don't be flippant with my name or reputation. How can we be flippant with God's name or reputation? Well, first is the probably most well-known application, and that is using his name as a curse. I've already talked about that. Leviticus 24, we talked about the two guys on the plane. All that I will say more about all of this is, hey, welcome to the club. Likely we have all failed just on this account, sometimes in more subtle ways that couldn't be seen by others, that might even be explained away. Well, I, I didn't say God, I just said golly. I didn't say Jesus, I just said geez. Here's the issue. Before I get too far into meddling, I don't know your heart, but the Lord knows mine. And the issue is always the heart. We have failed in many times and in many ways, some of them subtle. I may use a softer version of the name of God and may be totally in sin in doing so. I have to deal with my heart before the Lord. And sometimes, by golly, we just do it in more blatant ways where it's obvious to all. You said the famous GD. I heard it. Yep, that's a sin. What do we do then? What do we do then with this very clear, stern injunction found in both testaments? Answer, very simply, we just agree with God. We just agree, Lord, that's sin. When I do that, when my heart feels that way, when I fail to speak of you as I ought, then that is just wrong of me. And we just ask forgiveness. And we just invite him to work in our hearts. 
Dear brothers and sisters, this is just a good reminder for us to help us walk faithfully within the the boundaries of the fairway, to walk broadly in the Lord's grace, to walk in the light, as John calls it in 1 John, just by listening to the way we speak about his name on our lips. So the first and the most well-known application is using his name as a curse. That's one way to be flippant. But the third command goes even further. Because flippant doesn't mean you have to go so far as to actually cuss somebody out with God's name. It could just be that you use his name in a way that's empty. It's devoid. In fact, that's why many um, translations, including the NAS, says, God will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. First off, to take his names, to take his name means to take it up on our lips. That's the, that's the idiomatic expression that's summarized there. And to take up his name on our lips in vain, that's a good translation. It means emptiness or thoughtlessness. It means without the, the due weight that the name of God should have. It just means to dishonor. Several examples we won't have time for. Malachi chapter 1, the priests disobey this command when they come with their polluted offerings, when they come dishonoring God's name by their very words about him. They don't cuss. They, they just, it's, it's clear that their work is empty, and they are the priests in the nation, and their hearts are empty. Isaiah 29, famous phrase there that echoes down even to our day, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We can, we can honor him with our lips. We can say the right words about him. But if those words of him are empty, then we've taken his name in vain. So if you want a simple way to not be flippant or a simple way to think about it, um, simply this. We shouldn't speak of him unless we mean him. I think that's the answer. We shouldn't speak of him unless we mean him at some level. Praise God. That can roll off our tongue, right? The question is, did you really mean that? Did you mean that or did you mean something else? And that was just kind of a nice filler. Hey, if that doesn't convict you, fine. It's between you and the Holy Spirit and I don't know. But I know there are times I've used all kinds of just really spiritual churchy phrases. I get paid to do it. So I have to go back to the Lord and go, Lord, am I just throwing your name around? Or am I really humbled by who you are? When I speak about you. Lord have mercy. That's another one. How about OMG? Ooh, don't go there. You have to decide. Has his name on your lips or on your fingertips become so empty, so vapid, so vain, so void that the very name of God doesn't mean anything to you anymore? Then just say, Lord, that's sin. Lord, that's just wrong of me. It's not what I want. You have put your name on me, so help me. I confess my sin, now forgive me. The Lord here with all of this, I believe, because the issue is always the heart. The Lord with all of this is not trying to squelch the the meandering prayers of a five-year-old who's struggling for the first time to figure out how to talk to a being he can't see or begin to understand. And, and neither, neither can his 40 or 50-year-old parents anyway. The Lord's not trying to squelch that. Now, what the Lord is seeking to do is to train up all his children by this means to truly know him. And this is a good discipline, isn't it? 
If you have failed on using his name in ways that are flippant, and we may fail a lot, then the answer, as it always is, is prayer. Don't be flippant. Second, don't be false. Don't be false in representing my person, the Lord says. Here we enter into legal testimony. In fact, it's, it's legalese that is found in Exodus 20, verse 7. The taking up of a name is exactly the kind of phrase that is used when you take up a name in the courtroom. You take up his name as part of the swearing of, his, of an oath. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God is the American version of that. But even in the ancient Israelite courtroom, there was such a thing. You see, the problem here is is, is deceit, but it goes further than that because, because we're representing him. It's not just a lie for a lie's sake, but it's a lie with his name in it. False oaths, uh, Leviticus 19, there's, there's the rest of the law will take Exodus 27, 20 verse 7 and like bring it out into case law and, and bring a lot of reasons and, and places and ways that this is um, prohibited. Don't be false, representing my per- person. Uh, false prophecy is another one that falls here. Uh, Jeremiah 14, uh, where, where, well, I won't have time to go there, where, where it says, the prophet says that the Lord has spoken these things. Jeremiah 14, the Lord says, these who have spoken in my name, they will, be, they will die by the sword and be carried away by the plagues that they say will not come upon this land. He said the very things that they promise you will not happen are exactly what's going to happen to them because they have spoken my name in vain. They have profaned my name. So today, when the TV prophets say, you know, God told me, brother, you better be sure. Friend, you better be sure because you will have to explain that, not to me, not to us. You'll have to explain that to him one day when you say that he told you. Now, this is a good place that I need to interject a caveat, an important encouragement here. Um, Exodus 20 does not tell us not to use God's name. That is super important. Exodus 20 tells us not to misuse God's name. Do you know that Deuteronomy chapter 6 actually commands the nation to swear by his name? Do you know that you are supposed to use God's name in in a swear? You're like, no, I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to do that. No, Deuteronomy 6 said, you shall swear in the name of no other gods, but in the name of the Lord alone. Um, There's a lot more that could be said to this that we won't even begin to have time to touch on this morning. Um, By the way, the ancient creeds and confessions, the Helvetic Confession, the the, uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, I mean, they like wrote paragraphs on like this one little verse. And what does it mean and what does it not mean? The point is, guys, just keep reading your Bibles. and, And you'll find, in fact, now our eyes will be more open to it, many times the name of the Lord is used to to confirm an oath. That's That's fine, so long as it is not false. And so the same issue is at stake. It's the heart. And so when we speak his name, or use it even in an oath, are we doing it um, rightly or not? So you can, if you are called to testify, with a clear conscience before the Lord, take a legal oath in the name of God when required to do so. 
using his name, the whole point of it is that it's just a call for sobriety. Do you swear? So help you God. It's a call to, to sobriety in that moment. It's a check on the heart. And so we shouldn't invoke God unless our intent in doing so is true. Not only because the issue is lying, but it's lying in his name, which is even more egregious. Don't be flippant. Don't be false. Third, don't be fake. Don't try to fake me, my power, or my witness. Don't try to fake me, my power, or my witness. In the ancient Near East, it was believed that if you could apprehend the name of a god, having possession of that name, it was believed, gave you a certain power over that god. I kid you not. Um, uh, and so, sorcery. The, the prohibition for sorcery in the law, in part, grows out of the third command. Because it is an attempt to either fake out God or to use the invocation of God and gods to fake out others and manipulate. Uh, This is really the understanding that's in play when Balaam, uh, remember when Balak, king of Moab, uh, goes and he he goes and hires like the biggest celebrity cursor um, that anybody knows, right? And he brings in Balaam. This is the donkey guy. And uh, what does Balaam try and do? Balaam's whole job is to use the names of deities and manipulate to do them, to manipulate them for them to do stuff uh, for people that Balaam asked them to do. And then he makes a lot of money on it, which is a pretty cool deal. The problem is, Balaam's never dealt with the one true God of the universe before. So when he tries it, it doesn't work out so good. He tries to manipulate Yahweh. And God, after scaring him to death, threatening him, within an inch of his life, finally commands him and says, when, when Balaam is at the point where he says, okay, fine, look, I won't go. And Yahweh's like, oh, no, 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 no. I want you to go. You're going to go. But you're going to go and you're going to bless my people in my name because that's what I want. But don't you dare mess with me. Don't try and fake me. Don't try and manipulate me or misuse my, my power or my witness because it ain't going to go well for you. Balaam learns. Real quick. Uh, even the witch of Endor, when Saul comes and she tries to bring up the souls of the dead, this is a manipulation, this is sorcery, this is um, trying to use um, uh, God in his name and the idea of him, uh, and, and it doesn't go well. She gets a total shock. Um, similarly, I, I would say, don't fake me, um, has to do with also using God's name like a magic charm. Here, the attempt is not to manipulate God. Here, the attempt is to manipulate demons. But if you're going to try it, you best be true. Because if you try and do it fakely, you're in trouble. Acts 19 gives a great example. The seven sons of Sceva, they're Jewish exorcists. They hear of Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they're like, cool, we should do that. And so they go and they find a guy who's possessed with a demon. And there's seven, the seven sons of Sceva. So you would think, you know, between all their combined power, it'd be pretty good. 
And it's, it's laughable in Acts 19 because they say to the demon, we, we adjure you in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches. Because <laughs> they know him like that, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're close with him. Those seven men get the beating of their lives. A physical beating by a demon. And flee naked. Because they tried to fake God and his power and his witness. Brothers and sisters, an exceedingly serious topic in spiritual battle, you and I cannot fake the condition of our hearts. Do you know what is a great indicator of the condition of your hearts? How does the name of the Lord sound on your lips? This is a wonderfully good tool to help me day in and day out continue to bring my heart back into alignment with the glorious God of the universe who has revealed himself to me through his son, Jesus Christ, and made me his own, and that I not become dismissive of that, that I not become fake in speaking of him or empty or flippant. Scripture says the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous do what? They run into it, and they are saved. Are you supposed to invoke the name of Jesus as Lord? Absolutely. In spiritual battle, run into his name as a strong tower. But the effectiveness in that day for you to be able to do that is in part going to depend upon whether or not every day of your life, day in and day out, Christ is your solace. Christ is your healer. Christ is your fear. And I mean that in the most respectful, awe-inspiring way. Christ is your joy. If that is who you are as you walk with him day in and day out, then in the moment of spiritual battle, you have a strong tower to run into his name. Pray in his name. Hide in his name. I don't know, you think there's a reason why, you know, the way we tell everybody, hey, I'm done praying, you're supposed to say amen now. What is the acceptable way to do that? In Jesus' name, every time. Is that real? Is the question. Yahweh told Israel, because you are mine, now you represent my character to the world. Christian, if you have come to be washed in the blood of Christ, if you've been forgiven because of what he did for you on the cross, And now you are his, and you and I represent his character to the world. Don't be flippant. Don't be false. Don't be fake. This is the first use of the law as a mirror. That's what I've tried to do. The law as a mirror reveals and reflects back to us that what comes out of our heart reveals our heart. And so we, what comes out of our mouth reveals our heart. And so we need to admit our need and cry out for grace. Now let's just talk briefly as we close a couple more applications. Let's talk about the third use of the law. And that is as a lamp. Because one of the other things that the law does is it reveals the very character of God. And by knowing and understanding him better, it helps the believer who loves his God to know what his duties are, to show her how she might more please and, and glorify him. Really, can the third commandment do that? Yeah, fully understood. Let's talk about how Christ 
takes this command, as he takes all the law, and he fulfills it, and he deepens it, and he transforms it. There's a lot of other stuff we could talk about, but we'll just have time for two points on this today. How does Christ then fulfill and deepen and transform the command, do not take my name in vain? At least two ways. You can jot these down and then we'll talk about them. First, we call upon the name of the Lord. You just jot that down. We call upon the name of the Lord in Christ. And second, for us, Christ has perfectly honored the name of the Lord. That's what Jesus does with this command. First, let's consider this. Consider this. It is now uniquely through Christ that we call upon the name of the Lord. That's how we can come to the Father. The Father brings us to him through his Son. So Romans 10 says, Now we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. That's a pretty important name then, isn't it? If it's the name that we call on to be forgiven for our sin, it's an important name. And Jesus has done that. His is the only name by which a man can be saved. Acts chapter 4. It's a pretty important name. That's how important his name is. 2 Timothy 2 says that we are those who name the name of the Lord. John 14, the Lord Jesus there says to his disciples, If you ask for anything in my name. So, so at the name of Jesus, this is how we call out to God. This is how we name ourselves. This is how we are saved. And this is how we ask for anything and everything. Every prayer is asked in his name. It's the only possible way to find fulfillment for it. So how can we be flippant or false or fake with the name that means that much to us? And you guys know we're just barely scratching the surface of what the name means. So then what is his name on your lips and mine? Let his name on our lips be warm. (laughs) This is, this is my God, my Savior, my Jesus. Let, let his name on your lips be thoughtful, not flippant or empty. Yes, praise God. And when I say that, I mean that. God be praised for that. Let his name on your lips be honoring. Let his name on your lips be earnest, not just a, a passing phrase. Who of us is sufficient for all of that? (laughs) We're not. But the Spirit of God creates that in us as we fall more in love with the Lord. We call upon this name and all of that because of Christ Jesus. Secondly and finally for this morning, Christ has perfectly honored the name. Oh guys, this is our hope. Because I mean, in the last, in the last whatever, 30-odd minutes, I've said stuff that I'm going to go out this week and fail out dozens of times. But, but my hope before the Lord is not my performance. It's the Son's performance. My, my, my hope before the Lord is not that I've kept the law. It's that He's kept the law, and he, he kept it perfectly. There's only one who has every thought His every motive and his every word completely honored his father. And and he is the one who made it possible for you to come to him. That is glorious. That is the good news for us. 
What, what does that look like? How, how did the son honor the, names, the, 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 the name of the father? Let me just rattle off some thoughts. John 5. Jesus says, I have come in my father's name. John 4, speaking of just doing his will, which is part of coming in his name. John 4, to the woman at the well, he says, actually he says to his disciples, um, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food, my very nourishment is to honor his name. John 17, Jesus praying to the Father says, I have manifested your name to them. Later in John 17, I have kept them in your name. How important is that name? Jesus was making the name of the Father known to them so they could believe in him, and then he was keeping them in that name. I have made known to them your name, and I have loved them with the love with which you have loved me. That was part of the keeping them in the name. Guys, the Father is eminently pleased with the way that his son has honored his name, has revealed his name, has kept these children in his name. The father looks at what the son has done with his name and he says, I love it. That's perfect. It's exactly what I want. It is the father's pleasure to have his name in his son. How do we know? I mean, what does the father really think about all this? Well, you remember the proof at the baptism. When they're in the river, the voice came from the clouds. This is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. Thank you, Lord, that your son has perfectly honored the name. Because when I don't, I can come back and say, it's no longer I who live, but he lives in me. Lord Jesus, you honor your father. Help me honor the father like you honor the father. First Peter 3.15 you see, we're supposed to be like the Son. 1 Peter 3.15, we are commanded to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. That's just another way of saying we're to, we're to set apart His name in our hearts. We're to, we're to set, apart His, set apart Christ as Lord in our words and, and in our honor and in our affections. And that's a lifelong process that we're falling more in love with Him. And so let's be like the sun. Let's just close this morning then by considering the father that we name. God is the blessed and only sovereign, king of kings and lord of lords, eternal, immortal, invisible. His paths are inscrutable. His commands are holy. His knowledge is ancient. His counsel is truth. His ways are eternal. His wisdom is life. His grace is abounding. And his mercies never end. His loving kindness reaches to the heavens. His faithfulness stretches to the skies. His righteousness is like the mighty mountains. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of his wings. Stand with me and let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we honor you today. You have condescended to give us your name, to name us by your name and to put your name on us. Let us, Lord, bear that name with depth, with warmth, with honor, with fear, 
and with holy, glorious joy. We are not sufficient, but Lord Jesus Christ, you honored your Father's name in every way and with every word. So teach us, Lord Jesus, to honor your name and teach us to honor your Father. We pray this week, help us come and hallow the name. We ask all for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.